Welcome to Flight Talk. Today, retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonels Dave and Jeff will tell us about the risk of bird and wildlife strikes in aviation and how BASH, the Bird and Wildlife Aircraft Strike Hazard Program, has evolved to develop techniques to protect planes, pilots, passengers, and animals. Jeff's background is as a T-37 instructor pilot. He flew T-38s for four years with a varied background in KC-135. He was a safety officer for many years and served as the Chief of Flight Safety for the Pacific Air Force. Jeff has also done 30 years of Class A mishap investigations for the Air Force. He was also an aircraft accident investigation instructor and taught over 500 students from the U.S. and 60 allied nations. He is currently the safety advisor in the Air National Guard. Dave entered the Air Force in 1971 and graduated from pilot training in 1972. He flew the T-29 Convair for three years, then graduated to the C-123K provider, which he flew for four years. He then flew the C-130E Hercules for four years. For the next 17 years, he flew the C-5 Galaxy. Dave was the chief of wing safety for over seven years at Westover Air Reserve Base, Massachusetts, until his retirement from the Air Force. He then served as an aviation safety advisor to the Air Force Reserve Command for 11 years and is now in his sixth year as an aviation safety advisor to the Air National Guard. First Dave, and then Jeff, will provide the background on how birds were dealt with prior to the development of BASH. Since being in the Air Force since 1971, one way or another, the earlier days of managing the risk is they have some sort of beefed up their airplane canopy, which was more resistant to wildlife strikes, and try to manage the risk from that standpoint there. And they always sort of gave us what, you know, told us pretty much how important it is to try to avoid the risk of birds and other wildlife, like deer and so forth, which can cause a lot of damage to a fast-moving airplane. Hey, something that a lot of folks don't know and might find interesting, especially those of us who uh, either fly the T-38 or flew the T-38, when the T-38 was first designed, the windscreen, not the canopy, but the front windscreen, okay. was designed with absolutely no bird resistance at all. <laughs> okay. Well. And the thought was that the bird would get caught in the slipstream and go straight over the windscreen, straight over the canopy, and down the back of the airplane. Oh, how about that? Uh, yeah, so obviously uh, that sentiment has changed um, because we've lost uh, quite a few T-38s to bird strikes. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've done several of the T-38s that have been lost to bird strikes. The uh, Air Force has stepped up, and when they see a problem, they work to fix it. Dave will now introduce two significant events that have occurred in aviation history. These events have had major impacts on how bird strikes are managed in the Air Force. A tragic event occurred in 1995 up by Anchorage, Alaska. There's a base there called Elmendorf Air Force Base. It's a big Air Force Base. It was, in fact, September the 22nd, 1995, when an E-3 uh, Century, which is a Boeing 707, the old earlier Boeing 707 variants. It was early in the morning, and an airplane was cleared for takeoff in front of it, a C-134 engine turboprop airplane, and barreled uh, down the runway and took off. Well, when the C-130 took off, it stirred up a flock of huge uh, Canada geese at the 
far end of the runway on the, who were who were loafing on the grass. That's the term they use, and they started to fly. That Eucla two seven. That was the call sign the, for the E three century. Uh, Eucla means eagle in the native language up there. Eucla was cleared for takeoff, and, and they barreled down the runway, and, and just at the time they they lifted off, the, the, the two left side engines. There are four engines on the airplane. The two on the uh, left wing are called number one and number two, and they both ingested Canada geese and completely lost uh, power. The only two engines left were producing power, but not enough to keep the airplane in the air because it was very heavy with a lot of fuel on board. I believe it was a, a long mission was planned, uh, although they, they did plan to, 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 uh, to come around, you know, and land. They just didn't have the thrust uh, available anymore, and the airplane just went uh, straight ahead on its own uh, momentum and exploded in the woods into very small pieces, and it, it killed all 24 people on board, uh, 24 Americans and Canadians. Fatalities were dead and, and, and shouldn't be, and the airplane was destroyed and it shouldn't be. That's when I remember the Air Force, the U.S. Air Force, really starting to take an aggressive approach toward managing the, uh, the bird and wildlife risk uh, to, to airplanes. It was very aggressive ever since that time. I guess you call it blood priority. If somebody finally, uh, finally there's a fatality or an airplane crash, you know, then you start to take things seriously. But, but at any rate, the Air Force really does take it pretty seriously these days. On the commercial side, if we fast forward to January the 15th, 2009, another possible tragedy occurred with Flight 1549 uh, launched from LaGuardia. The destination was Charlotte, North Carolina. They got up a few thousand feet in the air. They had a much better uh, chance of survival than, than the Yukla flight did. But they flew right into a, a flock of Canada geese, and it destroyed both of their uh, engines. And they had enough altitude available to be able to glide down into the Hudson, and it was an absolute miracle. Everybody survived. And it was a freezing cold day, as I recall. As a matter of fact, they, they made a movie about that. They sure did. Yep, and I saw that myself. <laughs> Towards the end, you know, and they, they're pretty much done with the investigation. The National Transportation Safety Board investigates all these types of uh, accidents. They said, is there anything you, you folks did that you would change, anything uh, you would do differently? Jeff Giles, who was the co-pilot, said, yes, sir. And everybody turns around and looks at him. He said, I would have done it in July, <laughs> which was a nice way, to, <laughs> nice way to end the story. <laughs> would have been a lot nicer in July. The two incidents that Dave just mentioned happened due to bird airstrikes. Jeff will now talk about an accident that occurred because of an unexpected animal. Like you mentioned before, we're not just talking birds here, we're talking wildlife um, yeah. that wanders out onto the runway. Uh, I know at Beale in the, uh, it was either 1980 or the early 80s, we actually lost a KC-135 to a cow that wandered out onto the runway at night and got struck by one of the main landing gears, sheared the main landing gear off, and the airplane, airplane departed, the prepared surface went into the grass and burned. Now, the entire crew got out, <clears throat> but the point is, open up the aperture a little bit. It's not just birds in the air, but it's things that may be wandering across the runway during takeoff and landing. Exactly right. And that, that kind of wildlife, or any wildlife, doesn't really know it's at an airport. They just do what they yeah, normally would do. They're wild. 
After introducing some notable airstrike events, Jeff and Dave will share their personal experience with airstrike and the lessons that they have learned from it. I'll go back to the earlier days of the, you know, when I took flying lessons back in 1970, we were barreling down the runway one day, and right in front of me there was a bird that looked like he was doing desperately trying to stay out of the way. And so I manipulated the flight controls and moved the airplane around to try to avoid them, and the flight instructor told me not to do that. We just took off, and fortunately we missed him or her. And then he said something like, what if you crashed uh, trying to miss them? I think the message that came through in those days is just keep doing what you're doing. There isn't anything you can do about birds or any other wildlife. You just have to fly the airplane and don't, there's nothing you can do about it. I do have one story when I was flying T-38s out of Beale. It was the uh, it was January 2nd. It was the first day of the year. And uh, another pilot and I were taking a, a T-38. We were going to go out to the uh, the MOA and um, uh, do aerobatics. And there was a low ceiling that day, probably a 1,000 feet, and it was only a 1,000 feet thick. And as we yeah. took off and got the gear in the well, and just as we hit the base of that deck, we flew straight through the middle of a, a flock full of geese. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well... We didn't hit any, at least we didn't think we hit any. Uh, you know, the engines looked fine, uh, nothing on the canopy, couldn't see anything on the wings or any of the part of the airplane we could see. But the, being the prudent thing to do, we elected to discontinue uh, hitting out to the area. Uh, we turned crosswind and then got radar vectors to final. Uh-huh. And as we uh, came back around, you know, we had to penetrate that uh, that deck again. And as we got to the base of the deck as we broke out of the clouds, there was either that same flock of geese or another flock of geese. And we flew straight through them, too. Although, like you in the Cessna 152, I was moving the jet around trying to keep from hitting anything, which you know may or may not have been um, successful. But we didn't hit uh, any birds. And uh, obviously, we made, it, we made it a full stop. And when I got done arrow braking and I put the nose down to, to finish with wheel braking, my legs were shaking so hard I almost went off the end of the runway. One of the lessons I did learn from that was we immediately called tower and let them know that there was a, a flock of geese that was scud running. And, you know, we, we had absolutely no idea how big the flock was. We knew where they were or at least where they had been. So the lesson in that was... Basically, anytime you spot birds that are a hazard to aviation on or near the airfield, let Tower know so they can pass it on to other air crews. Just as a sense of, like, a little bit of statistical data on bird strikes, the Air Force had about 1,100 bird strikes last year in 2018. 1,100? Wow. Yeah, almost 1,100. It was 1,098. So I'm going to cheat and say 1,100 because some probably didn't get reported. Jeff and Dave have shared personal and historical bird strike accidents. As a result of these incidents mentioned, there are a few useful techniques that they will share about how to avoid airstrikes. There are techniques that airfields can use, uh, airports can use to manage the risk. The key to, this was told to me by uh, one of the world's foremost authorities on wildlife habitat management near airports is Dr. Russell DeFusco. 
former Air Force chief of the bird strike avoidance team, longtime uh, advisor to the Air National Guard. It's habitat management. If the airfield, whoever the airfield managers are, can make the habitat as unattractive as they can to birds uh, and, uh, you know, and other wildlife, that would be beneficial. One of the techniques, and this is in the Air Force instruction these days, it's if you can grow grass, and grass is a good thing to have at your airport because grass itself is a deterrent to wildlife, according to Dr. DeFusco, because it's indigestible to the birds and you know most uh, wildlife because it uh, doesn't have the nutritional value. Too much lignin, too much cellulose, I guess. Birds are really not eating the grass generally when you see them out on the airfield. They're really looking for insects and, and other uh, invertebrates and uh, broadleaf vegetation. A notable exception is the Canada goose. They can live on grass, and that's why you see huge amounts of them on big open expanses of grass because they can go through that, and but they have to go through a great deal of it before they can derive any nutritional value from it. There are techniques to maintain your grass height if you can grow grass all around your airfield. The Air Force mandates 7 to 14 inch grass height because it's an intermediate height that just makes Flocking birds uncomfortable. Their interflock communication is disrupted because of the grass height. And the other thing is they can't see their predators. I guess it's a jungle out there, you know. Most wildlife has other wildlife that's looking to, to eat it. They can't see their predators as well, and so that makes it a little bit unattractive. They'll, they'd rather go to the golf course that's seven miles away that, where the grass is mowed right down to the nub, you know. Well, and plus at the golf course, they have a snack bar. Who wouldn't want to be there? <laughs> That's right. That's right. The FAA actually has a recommendation of 6 to 12 inches, which is, you know, not much different than the Air Force's mandate of 7 to 14 inch grass height. But there's a big difference with, between a mandate, you know, and a, a recommendation. You know, an airfield manager can say, hey, I can manage my airfield for aesthetics, you know, and make it look pretty. Well, that might not be the best thing for safety to do that. But then there are airfields that can grow grass, you know, because of the, the south in the great uh, Tucson, Arizona, for instance. You know, they'd have they wouldn't be able to grow grass, so that little risk technique is not available to them, I guess. Also, that intermediate grass height it kind of makes it more difficult for them to to walk around. The grass is mowed right down to the nub, it makes it a lot easier for them to actually move. But if it's at a seven to fourteen, it's grass height. They're uncomfortable there. To just being able to physically <coughs> So anyway, that's the one technique that the Air Force uses in terms of, you know, managing the risk. You should have a good fence around the airfield. It has a footer, you know, goes right down into the ground. It goes all the way up. I think the Air Force has the fence height, I think uh, eight. Yeah, but all bets are off when you get those cows with wire cutters. <laughs> that's exactly right. But there is a fence uh, standard for airfields that is, it's a higher standard than the, than the terrorist. It's eight feet of chain link high, and then three feet of angled barbed wire at the top is what the standard is. That'll keep most wildlife off the airfield, unless they're already on the airfield, but it'll keep the four-legged wildlife off the airfield. Oh, yeah, and you have to make sure that, you know, the, the bottom of the fence goes right down into the concrete below it, because from what I've been told, this is Dr. DeFusco again, a white-tailed deer can jump an 11-foot fence from a standstill, but if the bottom of the fence has sort of a hole in it, why jump it if you can just walk right underneath it? It's important, uh, I think, for an airfield manager to look around at his, uh, at his fences, his uh, fencing around the perimeter of the, the airfield. But 
you're right. If the, the cows come in with those wire cutters, and it sort of that sort of defeats the whole purpose of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's another uh, a technique is fencing there. They also scare them away, you know, when they can. There are scare cartridges and pistols with scare cartridges to to discourage them from hanging around on your airfield there. Come on, guys, go hang around somewhere else. There's depredation available, but uh, that's a very last resort. You don't want to kill any birds or any other wildlife, but that's if nothing else actually works. I think another good technique for air crew is if you're going transient into a base, know what the bird watch condition codes are for that base. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right. You know, know the status of, of what's going on with birds on the base because you may have left one base flown a thousand miles and, you know, you're descending into a, a base in a completely different region that may be in a flyway and it's more applicable there than it was at the base that you left that they're actually under a, a bird watch. So it's important not to become complacent with, well, there were no problems when I left base A there probably won't be any problems when I get to base B. You know, know, know what the issues are. Yeah, exactly right. There's a website that people can go to. It's called the USAHAS.com. So I notice it's .com. Anybody can use it. The Air Force put together, I think the Air Force did or somebody did, uh, what they call a bird avoidance model. And the bird avoidance model is it's all historical data. These are thousands of bird watchers and you know, counts that come from bird sanctuaries and the Audubon Christmas count, those types of things are put together to find, you know, what the likelihood of birds is various times of the year. It does vary. The migratory season is, is one time a year when the numbers seem to come up. And then the dead of winter, I believe, at a place like Dover Air Force Base near Dover, Delaware, that's one of the most bird riskiest airfields we have in the, in the Air Force. Big, huge. National Wildlife Refuge nearby, the Bombay Hook National Wildlife Refuge is in that particular area. No geese are, are there, and the airfield man aggressively manages the risk. What they have there is, I believe they have a bird radar like a few other airfields have. It's radar that actually picks up birds, but they don't know exactly how it's actually uh, Managed. I don't know how they. I don't know if the control tower uses it or if someone else does, but it is bird radar. And I've been inside one of those units, incidentally, at Beale Air Force Base, California, because they've got one there too. But what you said about the bird watch conditions, very good advice. And there's the uh, the avian hazard avoidance system. That's that's on that USAHAS.com uh, website, where periodically, every six minutes, it's updated, and there's. Next red, uh, next generation radar, which when you look at the, uh, you know, the weather observation at night, when you watch the news, that's the same radar. They've incorporated, uh, I don't know the science behind it all. Uh, that's another uh, predictive tool, which is actually based on real-time data for the next period of time. I believe it's an hour. And then after that, it'll go into, I think, a soaring model based on temperatures, forecast, and so forth, which means that condition that doesn't mean the birds are going to be there, but it means that conditions will be good. Maintaining grass levels, using fences, and knowing the bird watch conditions are all useful measures to prevent aircraft bird strikes. They will now talk about some techniques that are not effective for preventing bird strikes. There's a couple things that don't work, like it, you know, uh, like a rubber owl or something. 
birds will just go ahead and perch on that thing. It doesn't seem to work. Uh, and there are people that try to sell you anything. There's a company that actually sells little, like, um, they're like pins or whatever uh, that you stick on top of all the vertical surfaces on the, uh, the airfield, like the, you know, the signage and so forth, so birds don't want to perch on that, you know, perch there and so forth. So that those are pretty effective. But there are techniques that are not. Anyway, from a management standpoint, I guess you want to manage the risk from every possible angle. And uh, from a pilot standpoint, communicate with other, you know, with the control tower and other, other aviators and uh, watch that bird watch condition if you're going to go somewhere. Oh, you're going to go somewhere besides the airfield that you're on. Uh, once again, I start off with, you know, the uh, the last flight of the Yukla 27 up at uh, Elmendorf Air Force Base, Alaska. You hope you don't see another one of those again, but... But it's wildlife, <laughs> and you, you just can't tell wildlife what to do. You can scare them off your airfield, and uh, if you know if necessary, you can, you know, you can depredate these creatures. But you don't want to do that unless it's absolutely, and unless you have no other resort. After years of investigating bird strikes and having had several damaging bird strikes myself, I think I've actually gotten a little cynical. Because now, when you're out and you see a flock of geese migrating, you know, and they're in that nice V formation, and then everybody goes, oh, is, you know, isn't that beautiful? I always look and go, well, there's a bird strike waiting to happen right there. <laughs> I, did this. I used to look at it like, boy, isn't that beautiful? You know? yeah. Then I became a safety officer. <laughs> I said, oh, gosh, you're to bring an airplane down. Uh, Today, Dave and Jeff shared with us their expertise on preventing airstrikes as well as their personal experiences with these incidents. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Flight Talk, brought to you by Strategic Results. We hope you enjoyed listening.